Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. Here I am again. <laughs> Last time I was supposed to be here, we had a parking lot full of water. So I got skipped. And this isn't the message I was going to bring that day because that was a Christmas message. So that one's, we'll just save that one till next year sometime. <clears throat> I got my first job in the summer when I was 12 years old. I worked on a farm in the Green River Valley, down past Auburn, picking berries. It was a large farm for the area, over 200 acres. It was a source of summer jobs for kids. At the beginning of summer, they had around 900 kids working there, but by the end, there'd be a little over 100. We thought it, we thought it was hard work. When I started, I was a, not a good worker, <laughs> kind of a nerdy know-it-all. We were paid a dollar a flat. Not the little flats you see in the grocery store, but canner's flats. They're like 14 quarts or 20 pounds. The first day, I made 75 cents. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm surprised that I kept going back, but I did. The first summer, I, uh, first summer I picked raspberries. I returned the next summer and picked strawberries as well. I stayed on at the end of the season to do what we called raspberry caning, removing the old spent bushes and pruning next year's shoots. And, you know, we had to use tools like this. It was, you know, it was work. We got paid. It was piecework, so the more work we did, the, the more we got paid. Um, but I continued working there summer after summer. I got better at picking. I could easily make 20 bucks a day, although I had to work at it. I was promoted to supervisor, which basically meant loading flats and yelling at kids. And worked weekends in the spring and fall doing things like weeding, and I brought a prop for that too. Got pretty good at you know some of this kind of stuff. Hoeing. You don't you don't hoe like this. You you hoe like this. Just a just a tip. Or driving a tractor or a truck. I got so I could do that. Sometimes we did really hard work like loading and unloading eight-foot cedar posts, mucking out drainage ditches, which kind of reminds me of the ditch over here, <laughs> or pulling wires that kept the raspberry plants upright. Oh, sure, we would goof off sometimes. I, I got really good at throwing sidearm because uh, it's a lot harder to spot somebody throwing than throwing overhand. It's easy to see somebody doing that. I didn't want to get caught, so, you know, and then there's this other this trick we used to do where you throw a dirt clod high in the air at, at, your, uh, at your target, and they sit there looking at that, and you smack, you get them. But, you know, I got good enough where I could hit them with a high one, too. So what did I learn from my first job? I learned, I learned to be a self-starter. Don't stand around and wait for the boss to tell you what to do next. Figure it out and do it. And this is something my dad had been telling me, but it, it was true. It was a real thing. 
And I learned that employers value reliability. They value it highly. I learned to be trustworthy and reliable. My career after college was something totally different, sitting in front of a computer writing software. But what I learned from working on the farm was pivotal in helping me to become successful at all my later jobs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your care for us. We thank you for uh, the work that you give us to do. Um, I thank you this morning, especially for your word, and I pray that you would use your spirit to speak, uh, speak through me from your word. We want to give you the honor and glory. We want to know you more. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. Wait, who? Who? What things? After these things. Paul had been sharing the gospel on Mars Hill in Athens, remember? message that Will brought. And used their own altar to an unknown God to tell them about the one true God who created them and wants them to know him. And notice that Paul did not get run out of Athens. He had successfully planted a church there and was moving on, although he was alone. And I've got a map. So Paul's on his second missionary journey. He started in Syria, down here, went through modern-day Turkey. There he goes. Went through modern-day Turkey, visiting cities where he'd planted churches from the last trip. Then he went across to Macedonia, modern-day Greece, starting churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And now he's gone to Corinth. Okay? Corinth is 50 miles west of Athens on a narrow isthmus of land. Kind of like Panama, you know, it's a little neck between two bigger chunks of land. It was a major crossroads of commerce. Shipping traffic would use it as an overland shortcut. So instead of having to go all the way around this big island at the bottom here, it's not really an island, um, they could go through and just through a, a, over a couple of miles and have a shortcut. So it was popular for shipping traffic. And it also connected north-south land traffic. So everybody, if they wanted to trade or travel, they had to go through this thing. They didn't have the big bridges that we have now. Because of its location, it was a major commercial center. It's the largest city in Greece, the third largest in the Roman Empire. It had been leveled by Rome in 146 BC and rebuilt as a Roman colony 100 years later. It was ethnic, ethnically diverse, with its people mostly at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. If Athens had been a culture, if Athens had been a culture of learning, whew, if Athens had been a center of, cult, of culture and learning, Corinth was a center of commerce and immorality. Corinth was like New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, all put together 2,000 years ago. They even had a Greek word for live like a Corinthian that meant to live immorally. So on to verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So you might have heard of Aquila and Priscilla before. We don't really know if these two were Christians when, when they were kicked out of Rome, although they, it seems clear that they were Christians when Paul found them here. It seems likely that they were in Rome too. They are always mentioned together in the Bible. They became friends with Paul and went on to be valuable ministry partners. Here are just a few verses that mention this husband and wife team. Acts 18.18, 18, a little further down. This is a year and a half later. Paul remained many days longer. He took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, leaving Corinth. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. They, they went with him when he left Corinth. Acts 18.24. In Ephesus, now a Jew named Apollos, who we'll probably hear more about later, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they weren't just tent makers, they, they knew stuff. <laughs> First Corinthians sixteen nineteen In Ephesus, a couple of years later, Aquila, this is Paul writing to, back to the Corinthians, Aquila and Prissa, that's another name for Priscilla, Greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And again, Romans 16, verse 3. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. I also greet the church that is in their house in Rome. So these guys later on would go on to have house churches in Ephesus and later in Rome. Wherever they went, they used their resources to further the gospel. So when it says he was of the same trade, it means that's how they made their living, making and selling tents out of leather and goat's hair cloth. Then my first point is working together with Christian friends is a good thing. I think of Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's, um, I don't know if you've had somebody in the place where you work, be a Christian, but um, it, can be, it can be a neat thing. It can be, you know, you're, otherwise you're around a lot of non-Christians. Um, you guys, I think some of you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's like a light in the dark. And uh, it's as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I talked about tent making a couple of months ago. The term tent making is used today in the mission field to describe a missionary that's not primarily supported by the mission agency. Like Paul, they use their own trades or professions to support themselves. Tent makers do cross-cultural full-time ministry. They reach out to people in their workplace and in their free time. They are not second-rate witnesses or lone rangers. So why was Paul working? So that he wouldn't be a burden to others. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He had done the same thing in Thessalonica. But just because a missionary or preacher is working at another job, it does not relieve the church from supporting them financially. Paul compares it to being a soldier in 1 Corinthians 9, 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? 
Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law not also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do not we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And again, Paul writes that he did this in order to be a good example. 2 Thessalonians 3.8 Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we would not, do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Verse 4 and he was remaining, and he was and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. You know, this is just like Paul had done it in places where he'd gone before in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Go to the synagogue first. And my second point is when sharing the gospel, dialogue is better than arguing. Maybe dialogue is always better than arguing. <laughs> I have to confess that this is hard for me. I grew up around and have seen a lot of arguments. I've participated in them too. <laughs> I'm not as good at dialogue. I, I think our culture is not as good at dialogue. It seems easier to argue. And the reason I'm saying this here is the, the Greek word for reasoning in verse 4 is dialegami. It means to converse, to discuss, inform, or instruct, to dialogue, especially of instructional discourse that frequently includes exchange of opinions. That is quite different from what we think of as arguing. Arguing often involves anger and attacking each other's character. We will be much more effective sharing the good news with others using this approach rather than simply arguing. And notice, too, that Gentiles are there in the synagogue. They're, they called them God-fearers because they were attracted to the truth that God spells out in the Old Testament. And although this version says he was trying to persuade them, he was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, I think a better translation is he was convincing Jews and Greeks, or he was persuading them. He was doing more than trying, although he wasn't entirely successful, as we'll see. Verse 5, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, stop there. Remember Silas and Timothy were still back in Macedonia up north? They traveled down to Corinth and brought a gift of money from the church in Philippi. 2 Corinthians eleven nine says, and when I was present, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, when I was present with you and, was, and when I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supported my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. So the rest of that verse. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, 
Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. It says, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. What it's saying is that because of the money that Silas and Timothy brought, Paul was able to stop working at the tent shop for a while and focus on preaching. Once again, he told the Jews that the Messiah that they were waiting for had come, and his name is Jesus. Verse 6, But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. You know, most of the most of the people listening had done what they'd done pretty much everywhere where Paul had shared the good news. They opposed him and made it personal. In other words, they argued. But there are two unusual expressions in this verse. He shook out his garments, and your blood be on your own heads. What do these mean? He shook out his garments is was something that Paul did as a visual demonstration of giving up on the synagogue. Like we might say, I wash my hands of you. In other places, the disciples had shaken the dust off their feet to express the same kind of thing for a town that had rejected the gospel. So when he says, your blood be on your own heads, what he's saying is, you are to blame for your own judgment. Why would he say this? Because in a way, up until that point, he was responsible for their judgment. God had called Paul to share the gospel with him. And if he had failed to do that, he would be held accountable by God. He wasn't responsible for their choice of following Christ or not, just for the delivering the message that God had given him. The same is true for us today. God will hold us accountable for not sharing the gospel. Wow. That is sobering. I know that I have fallen short of this area in my own life. God has given me the responsibility to share the good news with people in my life that haven't heard it. That's a big deal, especially when I feel that prompting from the Holy Spirit. But I'm afraid, so I keep my mouth shut. This grieves the Holy Spirit who lives in me. It makes him sad. But with God's grace, he'll give me another chance and I'll get it right next time. I want to point out that, that we're not held accountable for the choices of other people, good or bad, but for our own choice of sharing or not sharing what God has entrusted us with. In Ezekiel 3.18, God says, When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out or warn the wicked from his wicked way so that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Or similarly in, in Proverbs twenty-four eleven, Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say... See, we did not know this. Does not he consider it who weighs the hearts? And does not he know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? So with that, Paul stopped preaching in the synagogue in Corinth. 
Verse 7. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Next door to the synagogue. God gave Paul a place to share right next door. Titius Justus was a Jewish convert who apparently had a large house, large enough for Paul to have his meetings there instead. By the way, he was still probably living with Aquila and Priscilla. He just moved his place of teaching. Verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. So not all of the Jews resisted and blasphemed. The leader of the synagogue and his whole family came to faith in Jesus. Another household conversion. Crispus followed Christ in spite of what his fellow Jews believed. It, it reminds me of Joshua twenty four fifteen when Joshua says to Israel, if, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now more Gentiles, non-Jews, were hearing Paul's message and trusting Christ, demonstrating their faith by being baptized. This was an ongoing thing, not just a one-time sermon from Paul. Verse 9, And then the Lord said to Paul, In the night, by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Stop there. So Jesus is speaking directly to Paul. This version says, do not be afraid any longer. But the Greek is stronger than that. The Lord told told Paul, stop being afraid. For some reason, I never think of Paul as being afraid. But he was sometimes, like we all are. He even admits it when he writes back to the church in Corinth a few years later. 1 Corinthians 2, 3. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. It's back to verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Jesus is telling Paul, you won't get run out of town like you did in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Everyone needs a word of encouragement sometimes, even Paul. It usually doesn't come directly from the Lord in a vision. Often God will use other believers to give that word of encouragement. That's my fourth point. God can use us to give encouragement to others. When you have an opportunity to encourage someone, do it. We've been blessed to be a blessing to others in many ways. You don't need to have the gift of encouragement in order to encourage other people. And God will bless you for blessing them. Jesus remi- and Jesus reminds Paul, like he reminds us, that he is with us. I think that's easy to forget. Joshua 1.5, God speaking to Joshua No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Isaiah 41.10, God saying, speaking, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jeremiah 1.8, God speaking to Jeremiah. 
Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus speaking to his disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And finally, Romans 8, 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Finally, verse 11. He settled there, Paul settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Eighteen months is the longest Paul had ever stayed in one city up to this point, by a long ways. He'd been chased out of most of the cities that he started churches in, leaving his team and new believers to continue the work. Finally, this time he could stay in one place for a while and see God at work, growing the new believers and growing his church. But the Jews were still working on a way to get rid of Paul. But that's for another Sunday. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're with us, that you never leave us or forsake us. I thank you for your promises in your word that are so good and so true. I thank you for your spirit that reminds us of these things. I thank you for your people that can encourage each other. Um, and just how you've put people in our lives to... Um, to bring our, your word and to bring encouragement, to bring love and, and, uh, and just presence to each other. I thank you for revealing truth to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www dot silverlakebaptist dot o r g